The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the way the Sea of Tiberias, uh, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat But that night, they caught nothing. Just as uh, day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. So they cast it. And now... They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore and full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Please be seated. If... uh, If you're listening at home and you maybe hopped on late, I'll just repeat what I said earlier that um, this morning I rewrote most of the sermon, so whatever you got in your inbox on Thursday, disregard and check your inbox. Not now, though, because we've already started. This morning I'm going to complete uh, my part in preaching through the 50 days of Easter and then um, handing it off to Pastor Mike, who will close the series uh, next week um, with a sermon from Psalm 16. You can pray for me. I've uh, accepted an assignment, which um, I was very grateful to uh, be asked to preach um, down in Texas. Uh, I've been to Texas for a while. I'm getting an all-expense-paid trip uh, to go preach for a friend his uh, installation as pastor of his church, and I'll preach to his church uh, the following Sunday. But I appreciate your prayers for me in travel. So Mike will uh, finish things out uh, next Sunday. 
So thus far uh, in our teaching on the resurrection, we have focused on the things that happened on the day of Christ's resurrection. But now John takes us past the first day to what he identifies as the third manifestation of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection. We should note that it takes place in the very familiar location of Galilee, the place where Jesus said he would meet his disciples and where he would, of course, restore them. There are two things to take from the sermon this morning, and I hope that they will be clear. The first is the faithfulness of Jesus. We should always be drawn to the person and the work of Jesus and see Jesus as faithful. He is the servant that Charlene read about from Isaiah 42, the servant of God, the faithful one. His faithfulness uh, to his vocation as God's servant to Israel, uh, his faithfulness to us currently as both the light and life of the world. And it's important uh, that we, we get this about Jesus because all restoration is located in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. Uh, God is not only going to fully restore us, but all of his creation which God made and called good. So the first thing is to really think and, and kind of lean into the faithfulness of Jesus. But then the second uh, thing to get from this sermon is that restoration restoration begins before those who are being restored even know that it had started so restoration comes to them uh, in advance of their knowing that they're being restored and i hope that too will be very evident uh, from the text I'm grateful to present John 21, 1 through 14, because I do believe that the risen, ascended, and exalted Christ is the answer. He is the answer to both our needs and those uh, in this parish, the community around us. But you know, it is not enough to say that he is the answer. We must also say uh, that we have to live within the privilege and power of his life which has restored us so that uh, the neighbors around us, the people you go to school with or the people you work with or you interact with wherever you interact with them can see within you how Christ has put you back together. But I'm not so sure that in all of the complexities of the time in which we live, that the church believes that Jesus still has the power to restore all things, including the communities around us. So I was praying earlier this morning, a uh, troubling thought hit me. It isn't so much that the people around us don't like us, it's that they probably don't think about us. They don't regard us. I mean, it's one thing if somebody says, you know, I don't like you. Well, you can say to yourself, well, at least they're thinking about me. <laughs> but I, uh, uh, what's so troubling is, 
I don't believe that the people in these communities around us even think about the church. They don't even think about us. And I, uh, that causes the church then to become a bit unsteady, which is why we need to go back and understand the great privilege that we have, the great power of the life of Christ that can restore all things, including you and me and including the communities in which we live. And he can do that just as he restored the disciples this day on the shores of Galilee. And that the restoration will be so full that just as the disciples went out as agents of reconciliation in the world in which they live, we can be sent out to be agents of reconciliation as well. The story here in John 21 can be read then on two levels. On one level, it is a story about an all-night fishing trip that ended in no fish being caught. That's hard. Work all night, come up empty. But the other way to read this story is that it serves as a metaphor for the disciples who had spent the better part of three years with Jesus and had come up empty in their discipleship. At the moment when they needed to be counted on most, they left, they ran, they hid. They were nowhere to be found. But now Jesus is going to change all of that. Not only will he provide fish for their fishing labor, but more importantly, he is going to provide them with full restoration for their failed discipleship labors. And you know, as we pull the story forward and we drop it into our laps uh, this morning, we can see this as a lesson for us as well. How many times have you felt like you've come up empty in your discipleship efforts? How often have we as a church prayed, try to make some initiative, do something, and we feel like, you know, we never get to what we wanted in the first place. And so there is an incredibly important lesson for us in our labors and our sense of failure or perhaps our actual failure when we don't own up to who we are in Christ. And yet what we will find is that Jesus is still faithful he still continues to invite you and me into fellowship with him dave irsing took me fishing last year and then in the in the off season if there is an off season of fishing uh he bought me a fishing pole which said to me i guess he wants me to go again like he's serious about me continuing this thing of fishing which is great i guess but you know dave has a whole lot of fishing experience and i have very little fishing experience so i i I wonder how dave might have responded if on our first great fishing outing um up to brant lake i told him what he needed to do to catch fish now of course dave is very polite um he might have humored me But he probably uh, would have ignored me and thought I was a bit full of myself. But here in John 21, what do we have? We have a carpenter telling experienced fishermen what they need to do to catch fish. There's an irony there, isn't there? You know, that seems uh, insignificant, but it actually opens a door for us then to look through and see 
how Jesus begins to restore us. For three years, uh, the disciples had walked with Jesus and yet had not fully given themselves to Jesus. And one of the, the major issues was pride. Was pride. Think about the pride of James and John when they asked to be seated, one on the right hand and the other on the left of Jesus in glory. What an arrogant thing to ask, especially in the, uh, the hearing of you know, your fellow disciples. Wasn't it Peter's pride that Satan used to trip him up? How about that demeaning and prideful comment by Nathaniel about nothing good coming out of Nazareth? But now it would appear that things have started to change for the disciples and especially Peter. Instead of resisting the advice from the man on the shore, which they might well have done as experienced fishermen, they humbled themselves and they did what he told them to do and they found 153 fish in their net. You see, that begins to open a way into understanding gospel restoration. That there are things that are keeping us from that God begins to chip away at. And as he chips away at it, we begin to respond. But then there's another way to see restoration taking place here. And that is after John tells Peter that it was Jesus on the shore, what does Peter do? He throws himself into the sea in order to get to Jesus. Now that word um, is a very forceful word. It isn't like uh, a lot of us do if we're on a boat, we get off kind of on the side and we lean over and we test the water, see if it's warm enough to actually get in. Peter, uh, uh, the text tells us, you know, just had on the, the bottom uh, part of his fishing suit. Think about the Gorton fishermen, right? They got the big hat, the big, that, that wasn't what they were wearing. Um, just, they'd been stripped all night to work. So he grabs his outer coat, throws it on, girds up his, his bottom part, and into the sea he goes. He just hurls himself into the water. This is Peter at his best. He's all in. He's ready to go. And again, there is an important point to be made about restoration from Peter's example. And the, and the first thing to think about here is that he is not reticent or unsure in his attitude toward Jesus. Now, you need to remember the order of this passage. The full restoration of Peter had yet to take place. This happens next. But regardless, before the full restoration, Peter is, is focused, laser focused on Jesus. He hurls himself into the water without reticence, without concern. And I just wonder, how many people, maybe even in this room, are unsure if Jesus really loves you? If Jesus will really accept you. If regardless of what you've done in the past, if Jesus is really inviting you. 
Why, why are we so reluctant to just hurl ourselves towards Jesus? You know, I, I don't know what gets your engine revved up, but if you had labored all night to catch fish and came up empty, and suddenly your net now is full uh, of fish, uh, you know, we might be tempted to uh, focus on the fish. But that is not what Peter is focused on. His eyes are set on Jesus. And he throws himself into the water to get to him. Now as great as that response is from Peter, we need to be very clear that the restoration did not begin with Peter. These are the responses of the disciples but what we will see is that the restoration began before they caught the fish and before Peter threw himself into the water. I'm very grateful to uh, my friend, Pastor Ed Reed, who explained uh, two important points about restoration at a seminar we were recently part of. The first thing he said was that the Bible, it's very important we understand this. It's very important that we hear this. The Bible puts the burden of restoration on the one who was offended. The Bible puts the burden of restoration on the one who was offended. Most of the time we go at this from the opposite direction, right? Most of the time we go at it like this. Um, now, Brian hasn't offended me, but let's say he did. I would say, well, whenever Brian's ready to say he's sorry, I'll think about forgiving him. And maybe we can do something together. But if Brian's not going to come to me and say he's sorry, then I guess that's that. But see, that's not the logic of the gospel, and that is not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible always puts uh, the burden of restoration on the one who was was offended and we should ask then well what has jesus done in advance of meeting his friends who had failed him well on one level you know we can say well he made him breakfast that was nice but on on that other level that we're reading the story we need to see that jesus had already provided something for them and had prepared something for them that is much more than fish sandwiches and when did he do this he did it long before they ever failed him listen carefully to what the apostle paul wrote to the church in philippi when he writes of jesus though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it was Jesus who was moving toward his failing disciples long before they ever failed. 
Before the foundations of the world were created, Paul says, God set his love on sinners. Jesus leaves the glories of heaven. He empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. But it doesn't stop with his coming in the flesh. He continues every day as he faces evil. He renounces evil. He overcomes this evil world. He keeps it moving forward toward the disciples as he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. This is the absolute necessity if we are going to be restored to God. It must come through what Jesus has already accomplished for sinners. It isn't that God is up in heaven hoping you and I show up with enough good works that he can say, well, I guess now you've done enough because you offended me a whole lot. I'll do something nice for you now. The Bible always puts the burden of restoration on the one who was offended because that is exactly how God responded to a world in need. He sent his son Jesus. And before the disciples ever failed, Jesus did something for them that they could not do for themselves. This is the provision necessary for the restoration, not only of the disciples, by the way, but for you and me as well. That provision then makes possible the path of restoration that Jesus has prepared for the disciples. What does he do? He goes to them. He goes where they are. He brings wood. He makes a fire. He makes fish, bread. He calls them, come to him. He fills their empty efforts with a bountiful provision. I want, to, I want you to get the second thing about restoration that Pastor Ed Reed taught and I got a lot out of. The goal of restoration is to make the relationship better than it was before. Better than it was before. Again, that is not how the world acts. Let's agree to disagree. You go way, your way, I'll go my way. We can be friends, but that's that. Let's get back to where we once were. Whatever the thing is. But think about the parable of the father and the prodigal. What does the father do when the wayward son returns home? First, he runs towards his son. He kisses him. He gives him new clothes. He gives him a ring, new shoes. He throws him a party. As Tim Keller pointed out some years ago in, the, in his teaching series on uh, the prodigal, he says that the father in the story is also a prodigal because he is loving with such great expense that some, like the older brother, consider it absolutely reckless. This breakfast on the shores of Galilee appears to be nothing more than perhaps a nice little gesture by Jesus, but it is in every way prodigal. It is excessive love. It is extravagant love. It is reckless love in the best sense because it shows us just how far Jesus is willing to go to bring his wayward disciples back into fellowship with him and make it better than it was before. The provision, 
He made an advance. Death on the cross. The path, meet them where they are. Bring them, bless them. Call them to himself. Provide for their needs. This is the power of God's restorative justice. And I want, I want you to know something. It's here today in this room. God's power of restorative justice is here today. For just as mercy was making its way to the fishing boat before the disciples you know, started fishing, mercy has made its way here to us. Just as mercy was making its way to Peter before Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Mercy is present among us right now. But will we believe it? Will we hurl ourselves finally, fully at Jesus? Will we go to him and say, yes, you do love me. Yes, you do. You have forgiven me. Yes, you can restore me. Or will we still hedge our bets? Fill our lives with empty things? Look at all the people who are doing it wrong out there. And not come within ourselves and say, Oh God, with this reckless love, change my life. Restore me. And let me throw myself continually at you. This deeper reality of mercy brings to greater light the truth that I have been driving at this Easter season. Because in John 21, there is an emotional response that is missing that has been present in the previous encounters that Jesus had with his followers. So each Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, on Resurrection Day, there is an emotional response response to Jesus and that emotional response is not found in John 21 and you know what it is it's fear it's fear fear has accompanied the disciples in their meeting with Jesus on the day of his resurrection but now that restoration is moving forward in their lives fear is gone if ever the verse Perfect love, cast out fear, can be applied. It would be right here on the shores of Galilee as Jesus invites his disciples to breakfast. What an incredible thing Jesus has done for his people and for us, not only to restore us, but to make the relationship better so we have no hesitancy, no reticence to go to Jesus because fear is removed. And when we get there, Maybe, just maybe, when we get that kind of restorative power in us, working in us, we then will start to take up Easter as a 50-day celebration. And maybe just then, we will see each Sunday as a great Easter celebration because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Which means we can eat and drink and be merry not because tomorrow we die, no hope, but because the Savior lives, we have all hope. We should be the people who are partying more than anybody else. And we find it hard to say amen or hallelujah or whatever after a, a presentation of a song about all that Christ has done for us. Think about it. 
What is holding us back from hurling ourselves at Jesus? So as I close this sermon, I urge us to remember that Jesus continues to ask us, children, have you caught anything? Have you caught anything? Think about your life this past week. What you gave yourself to, your endeavors, how you spent your time, your day. It's just come up empty again. And here you are hoping to get something. Or are you meeting the risen Christ day by day who puts you back together day by day? Children, have you caught anything? I urge us to remember how the same Jesus who stood on the shore and invited his disciples to have breakfast says to the church, I stand at the door of the church and I knock. And if, and if anyone in the church will open the door, I, I am glad to come in and eat with you guys and have fellowship with you. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in. I will eat with him and he with me. If you have put yourself on the sideline because of your past failures, just remember you're doing it to yourself. Jesus never kicks anyone to the curb. Jesus is always moving towards people who fail, whatever those failures may be. And as their hearts change towards him, he is ready and willing to put them back together. I've had two or three profound moments in my life. You, you know, you know, you, you watch TV and there's some kid and he's now an adult and, and like something happens and he has this, this moment where he thinks back into his childhood and somebody said something to him so important he's carried it through his whole life. I have none of that. But I've had two or three profound moments when I have absolutely destroyed a relationship. And the person that was offended at great cost came to me and restored it and made it better than it was before. If you put yourself on the sideline, you're only hurting yourself. We never have to be afraid to come to Jesus. Never have to be afraid. So let me, let me end my part where I began now some weeks ago. Have you been to Galilee with Jesus? Have you been to Galilee and met with Jesus? And are you staying there? Meeting with him day by day? Have you admitted your emptiness? Have you asked them to put you back together? If so, then rejoice in his love and remember to go there every day for he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, 
neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen. Now, Father, as, um, as we think about your faithfulness, we think about your power, your authority and love and forgiveness, I pray, O oh God, that you might, uh, in, in real mercy, move upon us right now. I pray, O oh God, for people who that put themselves on the sideline, thinking themselves unworthy to ever serve you or the church again, that they would be able to move past their fears. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you might renew us and revive us in the power of your restorative love. And in a congregation like this that has some fractures, some relational breaking, where people are pretty much put themselves in opposite corners, I pray that we might all do our part to go one to another, to begin to pick up that burden of restoration, praying that through grace things might be made better than before. I want to encourage you right now to spend some quietness in prayer, preparing ourselves for the table, which is this wonderful, beautiful reality of our restoration in Christ. Let's be quiet before him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.